Welcome to another TeachingAmericanHistory.org podcast. TAH.org is the leading online resource for documents, resources, and programs related to American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. So, um, welcome everybody to another, uh, actually our last uh, TeachingAmericanHistory.org Saturday webinar of the series. Uh, these webinars are sponsored by the Ashbrook Center at Ashland University. TAH.org is the leading online resource for the documents-based study of American history, government, and civics for teachers, students, and citizens. I'm Chris Burkett, uh, Associate Professor uh, here at uh, uh, Ashland University. And um, if you've joined us before, you know that the theme of our webinar series this year is Great American Debates. If you're joining us for the first time, um, the point of the, these webinars is to pull together some thoughtful scholars and just have a conversation about some important moments in uh, U.S. history and, and political thought. And we encourage all of you joining us today to join in that conversation by submitting questions in the chat box feature. And as always, we'll try to get to as many of those as possible. Um, if you submit a, a chat, a, a question, or a comment, please make sure that you send that to all participants and not just to me privately, and that way uh, others can maybe build on your question or our, our panelists can can see a question uh, submitted and can jump on it if they, if they feel like they want to do so. So um, I should also mention that in the next week you'll receive an email uh, with a link to request a certificate of participation, and it will also include a link to the archived video and audio from today's program. Um, today's topic is the Great Society versus Modern Conservatism. Um, we asked you to read, apparently there was maybe some, uh, some uh, difficulty accessing the documents for today with some broken links, uh, I understand, in, in some of the emails that were sent out. That may have to do with, the, with our change over to the new web platform. Um, so apologize for that, but we asked you to look at uh, Johnson's Great Society speech and his comments or uh, remarks on the Voting Rights Act and two speeches by Ronald Reagan uh, won his time for choosing speech from 1964 and his farewell address. So um, I'm happy to be joined today by David Davenport, a research fellow at the Hoover Institute and has also done many, many good things for the Ashbrook Center. Um, and uh, hopefully at some point, Gordon Lloyd, uh, who's a uh, emeritus professor at Pepperdine, will be joining us. Uh, I don't see he's joined us yet. He may be trying to access uh, the, web, uh, the, the webinar here, but hopefully he'll join us at some point. And in the meantime, uh, David and I will have a good conversation, I'm sure, and uh, entertain your questions. So, David, thanks for joining us this morning. Um, are you you're in California still? I am. It's, uh, it's 8 a.m. and raining in California. And with apologies to any Houston Rockets fans, I'm drinking my morning coffee out of my Warner's <laughs> mug. <laughs> nice. Also, is, does it rain much there where you're at? In no, it doesn't, but it seems to uh, it seems to be this morning. Yeah, I think it's raining everywhere in the country today. It's been raining here for weeks. So, um, but anyway, thanks again for getting up so early and joining us for this conversation. Sure. Um, I know that you and and Gordon have 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 written on the um, what, you, what you might call the sort of earlier 
contest between uh, conservatism and liberalism as it emerged out of the progressive era through the 1920s and into the New Deal. Um, I'm wondering um, if you have any thoughts uh, to, uh, to sort of start us off here, if you have any thoughts on how the sort of contest between post-Great Society liberalism and modern conservatism either contrasts or is different from that early, those earlier forms of liberalism and conservatism, or their similarities? Do you think modern liberalism and conservatism, uh, are, the, are they outgrowths of the earlier liberalism and conservatism? Or how do we, how do we think about this, I guess, is the way? Well, that's a, that's a, that's a good question. Um, Gordon and I argued in, in a book earlier that we think of the Hoover-Roosevelt debates of the 1930s as really framing the classic liberalism, conservatism points of view and, and clash. Um, and in fact, we described, we described the New Deal as America's French Revolution, where everything in our view changed. Mm -hmm. and, and Herbert Hoover, though, you know, people didn't listen to him much at the time, in response to the New Deal, he essentially framed out what we think is the conservative response to uh, New Deal liberalism. Uh, and, and a lot of the arguments that Hoover was making in the 1930s about the growth of the state, about uh, economic re regulation, the rise of economic regulation, uh, about the decline of individualism, his phrase, rugged individualism, uh, a lot of that became the platform on which Barry Goldwater ran for president in 1964, and of course Reagan won the presidency in 1980. I think one key difference is that Roosevelt was able to implement a lot of the liberal agenda in emergency times. Um, you know, Rahm Emanuel, uh, uh, President Obama's uh, chief of staff, famously said, you know, you don't want to let a crisis go to waste. It's an opportunity to do some things you couldn't otherwise do. Well, I'm not sure we ever would have had the New Deal, at least to that extent, had it not been for the emergency of the Great Depression. And so Roosevelt's liberalism was kind of created in that emergency environment. And, and, I, and we believe had a lasting impact for 80 years in Still County. We think in a sense, we're still living under the New Deal. Johnson had an opportunity in the Great Society, I think, to define liberalism in ordinary times, if you will. Hmm. Whereas FDR may have created a kind of welfare state in response to the emergency, safety nets about jobs, social security, like Johnson had the, the privilege of sort of rethinking of liberalism and the welfare state in ordinary times in the 1960s. And so it's, it's, a, it's another, for sure, defined moment between liberalism and conservatism. That's a, those are great, great starting points, David. Now, but just a, one thought that occurred to me when you pointed out that Johnson uh, was redefining or rethinking liberalism in what you call ordinary times. It, it was not in, although Vietnam, of course, was going on, it wasn't... Uh, it wasn't the the, the crisis uh, was it, right. the, that was a crisis. It wasn't the same sort of crisis as the New Deal, and then of course World War II. So my my what it reminded me of it seemed like uh, Johnson had to use the language of warfare uh, in so many ways without having the actual <laughs> uh, uh, you know problems, uh, same sorts of problems that uh, that were facing FDR in his in his uh, terms as president. So uh, Johnson was declaring war on all sorts of things, but. Um, when you can I just a point of clarification? When you use the term, you said that Hoover and FDR were debating uh, the, the you know the sort of framework of conservatism and classical liberalism. 
What do you mean by classical liberalism? You, you well, mean the, the, as you see, the labels the labels have changed over time. A classical uh -huh. liberalism we would call today, I think, modern conservatism. Okay. Uh, and, and one of the challenges I think with even understanding modern conservatism is that these days we rarely use the noun conservatism without some kind of adjective. Mm. Uh, you know, it's it's. I'm a national security conservative. I'm an economic conservative. I'm a, uh, I'm a religious or social conservative. You know, so rarely do we just talk about even classic conservatism today. Um, but I'm, I'm using it to mean basically a, an, an emphasis on uh, limited government, individual rights and freedom to the maximum extent possible, consistent with social order. I mean, that's what Goldwater himself said in contrast to the conservative 1964, uh, that, that we're talking about people being able to live out the Declaration of Independence and their own individual lives as much as possible and, and, and still maintaining social order. Yeah, no, I see. That's, that's very... What, that's what Bullwater talked about, and that's what I'm really talking about. I see. No, that's, that's very clear. That's very helpful. So, <clears throat> excuse me, maybe before we... Um, get into some of the details of Reagan's take on conservatism and Johnson's take on liberalism uh, to stick with the Hoover FDR thing for a little bit. Because again, I, I thought I found your argument very interesting in, in, in the, in the book um, uh, that uh, you really do see the roots of modern conservatism and, and modern liberalism in, in the, in the arguments of Hoover and FDR. Um, FDRs, can we can we uh, talk about what's what's sort of the heart or the foundation of FDR's liberalism, and what's at the heart of Hoover's conservatism? So maybe to put some context to this, I've often heard or read scholars say uh, it was a frequent refrain for a long time, until I, I really I think your your work uh, proves uh, uh, very useful in this sense to counter a sort of long-standing argument that Hoover wasn't really for anything as a conservative. He didn't really stand for anything. He stood, he was against, he was reacting to uh, what he considered to be these drastic changes coming out of FDR's New Deal liberalism. Right. But your, but your argument in your, in your book is, no, Hoover stood for certain things. So conservatism um, uh, actually had some sort of principled foundations. There were ideas at the heart of it. You've mentioned some of them already, right? So uh, limited government, um, uh, individual liberty, um, consistent with, with order. So wh why do you think um, for the longest time conservatism was just labeled as sort of anti-liberalism? Do you have any thoughts on that? Well, I, I think I, I do think conservatism, modern conservatism, has a bit of a PR problem, if you will, uh, in that um, it, it is often opposing liberalism. In other words, liberalism is usually playing offense in our society, dividing, mm -hmm. it's, and it's always trying to solve new problems and and create new legislation and new initiatives, and you know, William H. Buckley, famous uh, conservative editor, creator of National Review, said. You know, conservatives are the ones that stand athwart history yelling, stop. I mean, that's kind of the image. Right. <laughs> In fact, if I could give a, an example from an Ashbrook seminar, teacher seminar that I taught one time about the New Deal, um, at the end of one of the sessions, a teacher raised her hand and she said, you know, I always thought Herbert Hoover was just a stick in the mud who never wanted to help anybody. 
Yeah. So now I see it differently, having read some Hoover and Roosevelt speeches. I said, well, how do you see it now? He said, I see Hoover asking a very fundamental question. Do we have to change the entire American system in order to respond to an economic crisis? Mm-hmm. Um, so I think on one hand, on the one hand, FDR used an economic crisis to change the whole American system. And that's precisely what, um, uh, what uh, Hoover was fighting against. Now, I'll add, I, I think the best statement of Hoover's conservative philosophy in a more positive sense is a 1922 essay he wrote. It's not too lengthy, uh, and, and it's been widely praised by people on both the left and the right as a, as a great piece of political philosophy, surprisingly good, written by a politician. Uh, he wrote a 1922 essay called American Individualism. Mm-hmm. He basically argues for, on the one hand, American individualism. He doesn't use the word tempered. That's my word. Tempered by what he called equality of opportunity. He felt those were the two fundamental legs on which conservatism needed to stand. Individualism, uh, individual freedom, individual liberty, c- accompanied with equality of opportunity. And uh, he felt those were really the two pillars on, on which conservatism needed to stand. And, yeah. and of course, Roosevelt was, was uh, very much prepared to implement a lot of Woodrow Wilson's ideas about experts in government and the growth of government, economic regulation, the creation of the alphabet soup agencies, the rise of the administrative state, uh, the power of the presidency over Congress. All kinds of things went with uh, solving the Great Depression that that remained with us 80 years later. Yeah, yeah. So a lot of great, uh, a lot of interesting questions uh, come up out of your your comments there, David. Um, this this idea that uh, individual liberty and and uh, equality of opportunity are at the core of uh, Hoover's um, conservatism. Uh, is really interesting, and I like to pick that up at some point as well because it seems yeah. like the because because it seems like liberalism would also argue, especially FDR's liberalism would argue that we also believe in liberty and we also believe in equality, but maybe maybe they have different understandings of what liberty is and what it looks like and how it plays out and what equality is. So, or Chris, another way to look at it is they they probably would combine them in different measures. Um, hmm. The first thing a conservative would say would be liberty and say, well, but of course, tempered by equality of opportunity. A liberal would say, we're all about equality. And uh, yes, within, you know, creating a fair and equal state, then people after that should be, so it's, it could be a matter of emphasis as well as, as you say, a matter of definition. No, that's great. Yeah, maybe the matter of definition is something that changes with uh, LBJ's uh, liberalism. Maybe we can circle back to that. I think you're onto something there. I really, I really do. And I'm sure that'll unfold as we go. But it's but again it's interesting that it, even in this great debate that takes place between Hoover and FDR insofar as they represent these these views uh, there is an agreement that liberty and equality matter it's a it's probably a matter of emphasis what's where do we start well, do we think about the other afterwards I'm sure you remember that that Tocqueville and his Democracy in America basically said liberty versus equality I mean I, I notice your title is the Great Society versus Modern Conservatism well. There are a lot of verses, if you will, underneath <laughs> that label. Right. Tocqueville argued in the Democracy in America that one of the fundamental uh, debates was equality and liberty. He did. And he forecast 
that Americans would ultimately rather live in equality than you know do the hard work of pursuing liberty. He did, and I think that's still the, the battle today in Washington and and in yeah. philosophy and everywhere. Yeah, it seems like that tension's been there in the American political way of doing yeah. or thinking about things, the American sort of political mind, if you will, for uh, almost from the beginning in a certain way. Just well, and if I could just add a quick thought, uh, the next book Gordon and I are working on is going to be about equality of opportunity, ah. which in our view has sort of devolved into equality of outcome. Right. So right. The, the nature of equality, as you say, has kind of evolved with time. And we're going to ask the question, um, one of our books is called Rugged Individualism, Dead or Alive. We think we may call this equality of opportunity, dead or alive. Nice. nice. Has it been overtaken by equality of outcome? Is that a good or bad thing? And what are the implications of that? Yeah. No, that's great. Look forward to reading that. So, and again, maybe uh, in a couple, at some point here when we move forward 50 years or so, or 30, 40 <laughs> years, uh, to, right. to LBJ, we can, I think we'll start to see you and I both know we'll, I think that's where we'll start to see that equality of outcome or equality of result Correct. Really start to Correct. take he over. Talks, LBJ in these speeches we read talks about equality of opportunity, but I think it's a fair question whether that's what he really meant. Yeah. Well, when he uses analogies like, you know, the starting line uh, in a race and things like this, I know that's, that's in Howard University speech, I believe, right? Correct. Mistaken. Correct. Um, but uh, he uses that kind of imagery, which suggests uh, in order to achieve a quality of outcome, uh, some people have to have an advantage at the start of the of the race, right? Absolutely. So it's actually kind of uh, um, equality means, um, uh, yeah, giving some people more of an advantage um, in a certain sense in terms right. of opportunity. But okay, great. So can I ask another question? Circle back to some interesting things that you raised earlier. And again, I'm still in FDR and Hoover here. Uh, uh, FDR's liberalism, part, part of the appeal of his liberal message was, um, it seems to me that, again, there's a crisis. We're dealing with the Great Depression, um, uh, financial crisis. And the, it seemed to me that what was appealing about FDR's liberalism to the American people was its optimism, its positive nature, its hope. That if we tried new things and we are willing to sort of cut loose from the past or our traditions, we can find new solutions to these problems, which we are facing. They're either new problems that we're facing, or they're or they're they're not new, but we're facing them on a scale we've never had to face before. Right. Um, so uh, part of part of the um, rhetoric of FDR and other liberals in his day was that conservatives, including Hoover, I think ironically in a way, because Hoover seemed to be much more progressive-minded, right, in, in a certain way, as you were describing earlier. But they characterized conservatism as, as fear-based. They often used metaphors of, 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 of sort of, uh, well, as FDR said, you know, the only thing we have to fear is fear itself, right? That is, that conservatism is this desire to turn away from the uh, possibilities of the future that come through greater experimentation with government administration, government regulation, government expertise. Right. And they seem to be pretty successful, didn't they, in labeling conservatives as, as um, not quite cowards, but simply backwards-looking um, people who had little faith or little, little hope for improvement in the future. 
And I wonder to what extent Hoover Hoover replied to that. Well, I think I think you're right about that. I think uh, this was a lot of the debate about Hoover's so-called rugged individualism, which is a term he coined in the in a speech in the 1928 presidential election. And Roosevelt succeeded in identifying rugged individualism with capitalism, in effect. Uh, right. And this, I think, this is. I think this has been an ongoing problem uh, with conservatism, uh, at least until maybe the time of Reagan, maybe to some degree Goldwater. Conservatism for a long time was thought of as sort of a mechanical economic theory. Uh, and I, th I think it was left to Goldwater and then to Reagan to sort of say, no, it's a larger political, social philosophy, uh, even spiritual philosophy. But for a long time, it was it was uh, typecast as sort of an economic philosophy. And so Roosevelt managed to, uh, when Hoover talked about individualism, Roosevelt managed to caricature it as, oh, these are the fat cats, these are the titans on Wall Street, uh, this is a winner take all, devil take the hindmost. Uh, right. And and that's why Hoover pushed back in his essay and in his speeches, no. This includes equality of opportunity. This is also a Lincoln-esque kind of thing. So that's one way in which Roosevelt managed to counter um, conservatism in those days is he did characterize it as sort of an economic philosophy that was very selfish and that was very narrow and hurt the mass of the American people who were out of work, by and large. But the second thing I would say is I think a lot of the conservative liberal debate in the New Deal was about the question of limited government. Uh, and if you go back, I've, I've read the New Deal history pretty carefully, and, and one of the most interesting things I discovered that I did not know is that, in a sense, FDR was not a strong political philosopher of liberalism, but he basically wanted to get things done. Yeah, and right. <laughs> in his first inaugural address, you quoted what people mostly know, which is the line about all we have to fear is fear itself. But Gordon and I argue in, in our more recent book that probably the most predictive line in the first inaugural address is when Roosevelt said the American people demand, quote, action and action now. Right. And some of his advisors in writing about the Navy later said, you know, Roosevelt didn't really care what the specific policy we had about unemployment or about the banks. He just wanted to do things. He wanted yeah. to try things. Um, and one of his favorite phrases in another speech was bold experimentation. So, and, right. and of course, Hoover later objected to that because it became much more than he ever thought possible when he was running against Roosevelt. He said, you know, they call it economic planning, but it's become economic regimentation. Yeah. So I think, I think and, and of course, the rise of the size and scope and scale of government and its involvement in people's lives all that really began in the New Deal. Yeah. So I think one of the fundamental liberalism conservative debates that is centered right there in the New Deal is the question of limited government and how we define limited government and why conservatives want limited government and why liberals want to have a broader government, a government that's larger, a government that's more active. Yeah. So I think that's one of the fundamental debates of conservatism liberalism that really came to the fore in the New Deal, and, and certainly returned when Goldwater ran against Johnson and society. Yeah. Great, great point. By the way, do you know off the top of your head, David, did, did uh, that economic regimentation that Hoover spoke about, did, yeah. he, did he refer to that as socialism ever, do you know, or was that? I don't remember he used that word. He may well have. 
but but he liked that word regimentation. You know that yeah. that Roosevelt calls it planning. I call it regimentation. Yeah, I, I can see why you like that word because it, there's a kind of hardness <laughs> about it that rubs right. against the idea of, of individual liberty, right? right? Self government. Right. So regimentation right. is has a military yeah. connotation to it. I will I will add this, Chris, that that if you remember right before Hoover came back to America and became Secretary of Commerce and sort of launched his political career, he was doing food relief in Europe after during and after World War One. And so when he came back to America from that experience, he was puzzled, having seen all the various forms of totalitarianism in Europe, fascism, socialism, communism, he came back to America and saw America sort of drifting in that direction. And, and Kenneth Warren, he said, I, I don't know why we would give in to that voluntarily. Yeah. So socialism, I would say, was in the back of his mind, certainly, yeah. along with the other isms that he saw in Europe and that he found very unattractive. Yeah. And to counter that, I know, again, your point about FDR, he's not necessarily a political philosopher, but he was surrounded by people who were well-versed in the political fauna of the day. And one of the arguments that, that I think Hoover uh, sort of forced out of FDR and his uh advisors or his brain trust or however you want to think about them was they had to make the counter argument that well you can you can import uh administrative techniques the kind of administrative techniques that work in socialist and perhaps even um uh well for example i know several of fdr's advisors were admirers of the administrative uh techniques of the soviet union um right. we, can, we can import that ex, that that sort of a regulatory administrative framework without it becoming totalitarian. Right. That's the trick for them, right? Because again, for, and this is, uh, uh, I thought of this in light of your statement about FDR being about getting things done. It's the efficiency aspect of things that I think uh, many of uh, FDR's advisors and ultimately FDR himself who found uh, appealing about uh, about uh, some of these other systems uh, that that, he, that some of them had seen in, in foreign countries. Yeah. But again, how do you do that without becoming totalitarian? And it seems to me that's, you're right, okay. that's uh, one of Hoover's... Uh, All right, so I will just, I will leave my phone on at the moment. Hey, Gordon's here. Phone, All right, okay? good. So, Gordon, we can hear you. Can you hear us? Maybe not yet. He's still getting set up. But it seems like uh, FDR had to... Um, Make an argument that we could we could we could engage in this uh, regimentation without becoming totalitarian. But but in, uh, again, we didn't ask students to read this, but I know it's in your your collection, uh, David. Uh, Hoover's uh, speech on the consequences of the New Deal. I think one of his main arguments there is you can't adopt this economic regimentation without going down the road of totalitarianism. So yeah, I mean yes, I can hear you. Roosevelt's fundamental argument was uh, we can't we can't afford to let the markets do all of our planning for us. Okay. And right. rather than markets planning, you know, we could have the government planning. So that was really how Roosevelt. All right. So the panel is four, and I see a picture right. of David, and I see. Sorry, David. <laughs> Gordon's getting set up here. <laughs> so um, I don't think he knows we can hear him yet. Yeah. Okay. Talking with our with our. Between Gordon, we can all hear you. Yeah, <laughs> Gordon, can you hear us yet? No, I can. I basically hear them in the background. But if I put my, he's putting his headphones on. Okay, good. 
We call Gordon Mr. Technology. <laughs> oh, yeah, yeah, if I put my headphones on, I can hear him. Hey, Gordon. <laughs> Gordon, hi, it's Chris, and David's here. Okay. All right. Okay. Okay. <laughs> So um, while he's working this out, um, well, hello. Is it? Can you hear me? Can you hear me, Chris? Yeah, I can hear you. Can you hear me? Oh yes, finally. Yay! All right, welcome yeah, to the. No, I could, I could hear, I could hear both of you talking, but I couldn't get in until yeah. Jeremy, the brilliant one, they let let me in. So here I am. I apologize. It was not me being oversleeper or anything. It's just my basic incompetence. That's okay. That's okay. But, uh, I, I, it really strengthens, but not well. We'll accept incompetence over laziness. So. Um. Oh no no, it was definitely not laziness. All right. <laughs> let's, um, so Gordon, so Gordon, really, go just ahead. to catch up, Dave, Dave and I've been uh, talking about. Um, we started with the uh, earlier debate between conservatism and liberalism. Right. I heard Merged that. during the during Hoover the, between Hoover and FDR, and we've had a really great conversation about that so far. And we started down this road so that we can, I think, see, try to see to what extent uh, the later debate between liberalism and conservatism uh, during the Great Society and after sort of emerged from that earlier debate. In, which way, in what ways did it deviate from that earlier debate? In what ways did modern liberalism and modern conservatism grow out of the arguments of FDR or, or Hoover, respectively? So we've sort of been working our way in that direction, just to sort of get you caught up to speed here. Yeah. I've, I, well, I've heard excerpts of, not excerpts, I mean, I've heard some of the exchanges which you made, the two of you have made, and uh, I was just dying to be part of it. So um, do you have a specific, uh, thank you for the overview. Do you have a, you want, you have a specific question you well, want if you, to you ask? Been, if you've been listening, do you have any corrections to anything that we've been Oh, doing? no, David, who would ever dare correct David? <laughs> oh, David, no, 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 David is David. Uh, well, no, I, I like the idea. I mean, the, the, let me put it this way. The, the, what I do like is the idea of, of the evolving thought that David and I have um, sort of been engaged in since we first started our work. It was well. Where does conservatism begin? Does it begin with Buckley and the Cold War? There are a number of conservatives who think it started with the Great Depression, and they've dismissed Hoover as some kind of idiot. And I really think that our evolving thought was that well, where does conservatism, modern conservatism, begin? And it's as a reaction. It's not usually an initiation. Conservatism is a reaction. Well. Reacting to what? What is it? What is the story of the 20th century? And it seems to us, at the beginning, well, it's the Great Depression. It's the yeah. New Deal. And so, anything conservative must must be some response to that. Yeah. And not just simply the Cold War or the Great Society. And that that is to understanding of the whole status of individualism and the mockery of it that yeah. has come out of the pr progressive left that it, it's been identified with laissez-faire, devil take the hindmost. And it's fascinating that in this 1922 piece that David referred to and in the 1928 speech, Hoover is at pains to distinguish what he's talking about American individualism from laissez-faire. Right. Right. And I, I, I think that that is the 
conservatism was attempting to conserve a certain kind of liberalism. Yes. No, that's that a good was, point. Yeah. That was lost or was felt to be lost with the New Deal that invented or created a new kind of liberalism. Yeah. With the Hoover, with Roosevelt saying equality of opportunity is dead. And I think I've been thinking about that because of David Boy, you're not, that's our next book. At, to say equality of opportunity is dead, it, I mean, it has a number of, of, of ramifications. So what is alive? Right? That equality of opportunity, dead or alive, uh, it, it's, it's dead in the sense that that's old America. I, mean, I think that's the New Deal story, that there is an old America and a new America. Mm-hmm. And new, out of March 1933 uh, is the Third Republic, so to speak, or the Second Republic. Right. Uh, and we, and the, the very little attention is being paid to the Civil War what, what, in the 20th century discussions. It's the New Deal. Yeah. No, that's that's that, that's great. And it, it's pointing us even further toward the great society stuff. So one of the things David mentioned earlier, one of the many good points that he raised, was that um, FDR, F, F, the success of FDR's argument for liberalism, um, was based in part, at least I don't want to overdo it, but uh, based in part on the fact that there was a real crisis, and it, uh, many of the ideas that Hoover was espousing as part of his conservatism, including his, his uh, attempts to, to uh, perpetuate aspects of classical liberalism. But many of the ideas Hoover was talking about should have been very appealing as sort of, I'll just call sort of fundamental American ideas, right? Uh, individual liberty, equality of opportunity. Mm-hmm. But it seemed like the call for action in the face of the crisis trumped um, trumped the ideas that Hoover was putting out there. And so it seems like the message of conservatism was there and sound and sort of, you know, there in toto in a certain sense in Hoover's arguments. But it it was either out of time or ahead of, I don't want to say it's ahead of its time, but it was out of time, it was out of sync with the uh, sort of political necessities yeah. of the day. Or, 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 know, I, think, I think conservatism as a certain de- as a sort of a teaching on moderation, uh, tends to, at, at least as David and I have tried to understand the origins of conservatism, conservatism is not a blind uh, rejection of everything that is, is that is new. I mean, Tocqueville, Tocqueville warned the aristocrats, the day of, of the age of inequality is over. Come to grips with it. Get over it. So the conservatism is conserving what is good and decent without having a blind eye to, the, to, to what is changing. And so, so I think that what Hoover was doing is what conservatism was trying to do was that return to normalcy that Harding spoke about after all the eruptions of World War I and, and all the progressive amendments and Come on, let's calm down now. Let, let, let's, where are we? And I think Hoover's idea was, look, there is a role for government, and there's a role for the private sector. The main area is the private sector, but there is a role for government in American society. Right. And, and so that blending, it becomes extremely difficult, and it becomes extremely difficult when you have a crisis. The blend right. doesn't seem to make any sense. So, so that, in a sense, moderation requires a certain degree of normalcy or peace. But if you're a, I mean, you've just come off World War One. I. I think the specter of World War One 
is haunting is haunting the debate. Certainly haunted Hoover with regard to what is going to what is he doesn't want Europe to come to America. And it's yeah. haunting it's haunting Roosevelt in the sense of look, if we could solve World War One, why the heck can't we solve a depression for goodness sake? America's managed to come together when they were at war, they united. Why can't we unite again? This is an issue which is about that we've got the moral equivalent of war. It is war. And, and David and I have pointed out, I mean, to our great surprise, we thought, I mean, we agree that all we have to fear is fear itself. That's what we were brought up with. That's what we learned. But we were surprised to learn that there's another phrase in there, action and action now, which right. is probably more important in defining public policy in the late 20th century. I'm sure you can let the sociologists and the psychologists handle. But action and action now becomes uh, politics of war. And that's the, I think, the real origin and the shift of the power of Congress to the executive. And Congress lets it happen. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm, I'm reminded, too, of the idea of you know, the FDR's administration, the 100 days, um, you know, prom- we promise we're going to do all of this in the first 100 days. I'm going to give them the report. So all this emphasis on action now. Yep. Um, yeah, very important aspect. And it seemed to jive with the American mind at the time. Uh, well, yes. And, pe- and I think a lot of the people who were alive in the 1930s were also alive around World War One yep. and alive around the whole idea of the 16th, 17th, 18th, and 19th Amendment. And... Uh, while they like the return to normalcy and the return to this more moderate conservative blending, uh, it's not a time for blending. It's a time for action. Right, right. Now, now that raises an interesting point. I'm going to circle back to a point David raised at the beginning, which which is uh, to maybe move us into the Great Society uh, era. Uh, David mentioned that it's... uh, one of the remarkable things about LBJ's um, uh, arguments with regard to liberalism, maybe redefining liberalism, was he was making those arguments in a time that was very different than the time when FDR was making it. So he wasn't make, he wasn't having to make those arguments at a time where they were facing the kinds of crises that FDR was cri- uh, facing or, or, or you know dealing with. So he, how did you put it, David? He was he was in sort of normal was it normal times. <laughs> I said one difference between FDR's liberalism and and uh, Johnson's was that FDR was implementing his in a time of crisis, and he created a certain uh, social safety net during a crisis, and he created certain government programs. But Johnson had a chance to rethink that during ordinary times and how how to extend and how to grow the welfare state. And and the and the liberal philosophy uh, executed by government, and, and so I think it is a very interesting study. Um, if if you got to play rather than defense in the New Deal and creating safety nets, if you got to play offense and recreate government and society, what might that look like? And that's what Johnson began to give us. Yeah, yeah. It seems to me that's a great theme in Johnson's Great Society speeches. We have we have for the first time in history the opportunity. Right. Not, we're not being forced to choose or go down this path of, of, of a certain kind of liberalism. We have the opportunity. We have the, almost like the luxury of, of thinking about who we are and what liberalism is and what it means for the future in terms of the relationship between government 
and the governed and, and regulation and, and various types of opportunities that you were bringing up earlier, David, right? So, yeah, so. in fact, you know, Johnson, Johnson's been able, he talks in this University of Michigan speech, he says, uh, we're, do all, we're doing all this and we end up with leisure. So what do we do with yeah. leisure? And, <laughs> right. and we're worried about the countryside and we want people to have contact with nature and so forth. Well, this is very not FDR, you know, New Deal. That's right. correct. This That's is saying we've, we've matured as a society, and now that we have leisure uh, and we have a period of growth, what do we want to do with that? And, yeah. Uh, it, it, it's a really it, different kind of context. Yeah, I think that, that David is really, is really correct. The idea of offense versus defense. Uh, um, I, I, and you also mentioned Tocqueville. I think what is going on here is a changing of the meaning or emphasis of the word democracy. Hmm. And that it is not simply ruled by the majority, although it is, because the three most important words for FDR in the Constitution is we the people, which means that the Constitution is an empowering document. Government is our friend, and we can do things. So yes, majority rule in that sense, darn the courts for stopping the the, the two horses going in the correct direction, the court is the horse going in the wrong direction. So there's a certain majoritarianism which is which is on there, but it's a new one, and it's equality. It goes back to Tocqueville, and that is in, in the Commonwealth Club speech, Roosevelt defines democracy in terms of equality. And once you do that, you're no longer really talking about equality of opportunity. You're talking about equality of outcome. Right. And so you're moving democracy in terms of the direction of everyone. So in the second inaugural, he looks and he says, I see one third, one third, one third. Well, right. by a certain understanding of democracy, democracy is working. The majority don't have that problem. Right. But by another understanding of democracy, of everyone, that one third, one third, one third means democracy isn't working. Mm. And I think that shift is very important. And when we get to the great society, I think that democracy isn't quite working because we have one third of the, the people disenfranchised or one third um, such and such. Um, I, 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 and so I think that the, it's that changing meaning of democracy from simple majority rule, political and constitution as a restraint, maybe on the majority itself, or on those who run power, to, to democracy becoming everyone, and, and government being empowered to be able not just to provide for individuals to pursue happiness, but that government is now going to secure happiness. Yeah, because and it's defended by democracy. As long as, and you can see it coming out in the 60s and into the 70s, as long as there is one person, as long as there's one child left behind, as long as there is, we, have, we are a failure. Yeah. We, are, we still have so much work to do. But once you take that attitude, then, then there's no limitations on government. Yeah. A limitation on government then is a limitation on doing the right thing yeah and it's demanded of government i mean you, you only government can if any if anything can accomplish that yeah, well exactly the private sector can't, 
Yeah, right. I think it's a certain idea. If the private sector is doing a good job, why let it to the volunteer? Let's make it mandatory. Yeah, yeah. Uh, I, I, I think David is really onto something here with the with, with the regard regard to defense offense taking it because one of the things that always yeah one of the what is the crisis that's going on that LBJ is trying to solve? Not to be cynical, and he created one. But let's say that there's a high ground here. And the crisis is not simply unemployment. Right. The crisis, in some sense, in the moral high ground, is that a considerable number of citizens have been asked to go and die for their country, and yet they can't vote. I mean, I, right. think, I think that's the high ground of the great society. Yes. That raising that moral, moral issue. And so you're taking the... People have lived with this for a long time, but we shall overcome. And I think that using that is a new is an advancing of liberalism. Now, whether that is that great society kind of liberalism is fundamentally different from the liberalism of the New Deal is a great question, which you have to wait till our next book. David, did you want to jump in? Go ahead. Yeah, I. You know, on your on your theme of how was LBJ's um, argument for liberalism different than what we'd seen before, um, and continuing with our theme that that perhaps FDR's statement of the case was more in crisis, uh, we have nothing to fear, but fear itself is sort of the watchword. I, I sort of looked at LBJ's Great Society speech in those terms, and so if I could tick off four or five key points quickly from that speech that I think shows the difference. Um, Johnson says the purpose of everything we're doing in the Great Society is, quote, to pursue the happiness of our people. We're no longer worried about fear. We're we're worried about happiness. And what I think would be interesting is I think a a, a modern conservative would say, no, the Declaration doesn't say it's the point of government to pursue the happiness of the people. It's to allow the people to be free to pursue their own happiness. So right there, there would be a debate, I think, in his opening statement, pursue the happiness of the people. Then he says, the enemy is unbridled growth. And, and of course, there's another fundamental debate between Johnson liberalism and modern conservatism. So the conservative would say, we, we, we need to keep growing, um, and, and we can manage the problems of growth. And, and, a, and a liberal like Johnson says, no, the problem is unbridled growth. We better regulate it. We better bridle it. Um, yeah. As I said, you see, you see him talking about things like leisure, and, and he says the loss of our values breeds loneliness and boredom and indifference. And it's almost like the president as sociologist in chief mm-hmm. uh, in the message. So it's a very different set of issues that liberalism is addressing now in, in the 60s. So I think it's kind of, uh, you, you compare Roosevelt's first inaugural, say, with Johnson's uh, Great Society speech, there's really a Wonderful contrast of, of liberalism in those two yeah. terms. No, those are those are great points, uh, David. And just a couple of thoughts occurred to me. A lot, actually, a lot of thoughts occurred to me. But uh, just uh, circle back, so I under, I'm trying to keep up with you guys. <laughs> Your minds are going so so deep and fast. So um, one distinction between FDR and LBJ was um, uh, FDR's liberalism sought to preserve the kind of opportunity for equal opportunity for Americans that he thought was deeply rooted in what America was. Whereas the shift for Johnson became, uh, it's not democratic. It's not truly democratic unless there's 
true equality for everyone. It can't just be a majority. And Gordon, you mentioned this earlier. I'm, I'm, not, I'm not saying it as well as you did, but it seems like the what what that the conclusion of that is really very important because it's not just an economic problem, as you just pointed out, David. Right? LBJ, in almost every paragraph, by the way, in that speech, at least in the opening part of his Great Society speech, he contrasts economic prosperity, right, with the higher thing that we ought to be aiming for. Right. So the great question in the Great Society speech is, can we just rest on economic prosperity, which he seems to right. admit did come out of the liberalism of right. the New Deal. And in a sense, as you pointed out, that's the problem, because we've become so satisfied and maybe complacent with our economic prosperity that we've lost sight of the higher things that ought to matter more to us. Uh, you mentioned contact with nature, and it talks about spirituality and, you know, these sorts of things, but a sense of community. Yeah, well, I, I, let, let me jump in here, because I think that the way you summarize it uh, muddies the water wonderfully, because what I would, to muddy it even further, I would suggest that the New Deal is involved not in an attempt to preserve the old order of America, but rather to introduce a new order. No, I, I, I agree, Gordon. Just to clarify what I said, I, LBR, or, or, sorry, FDR, I think was doing that, but he, used, he couched that in language that made it sound like he was trying to preserve the sort of old order in the sense that, you know, this equal well, opportunity. Well, if, you, if, if we were to go into sort of something that David has taught me, which is speeches are often responses, even liberals who are making a... Uh, are on the sort of on the move, trying to on the attack, so to speak. The speeches are responses. A number of the speeches of FDR are responses to criticism that he has abandoned the old order. So right. I think rhetorically, right. he's trying to 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 calm down the nerves that no, this is really not. We can do it within the American order. We can do it within. The 150th anniversary of the Constitution. We can do it. This is a long. Yeah. So he's couching a number of it in conservative terms. But if you read him seriously in terms of the second inaugural, it's not just economics, because he <laughs> one one of the questions that David and I've looked at was so did did the New Deal actually solve the the, the Great Depression? And then in many ways the answer is no, it didn't. So then what was so successful about the New Deal? And Roosevelt tells you in the second inaugural, we have changed from an individualistic society to a communal. We have learned that individualism, if not dead, ought to be dead. And that what makes America great is some kind of togetherness. And yeah. we've, re, we've restated what our values are. And I think Johnson could never have done what he had done if that had not been established and, and Eisenhower didn't really challenge that. Nixon didn't challenge that. Um, uh, well, Nixon couldn't challenge it. He came after. But what I'm getting at is that post-World War II America didn't challenge that, um, that notion of, of, of a certain degree of Americanness. And if we, can, if we can send a rocket to the moon and we can do such a, why can't we solve this one? 
So yeah. I think that the, I, 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 to muddy the waters further, I would say the Great Society is a continuation and could not happen if the New Deal didn't happen. Yeah. And, and even though it is put in these, I think, I mean, I would be a great supporter of the Great Society in terms of the civil rights stuff. Yeah. He also counts civil rights stuff as a cover for getting rid of hunger. And as you know, there are different kinds of socialism. And Roosevelt wasn't particularly interested in environmental socialism. Right. He was interested in, in every man's socialism, sort of bread and butter and housing. I think Johnson, is, as David has suggested, we're into the therapy now. I mean, this is, this is government as therapists. And you can see this is at universities. I mean, it's exploding with therapists. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, but, well, look, so let me, I'll, I'll step back and frame this again, just for my own sake, in part to be clear. Uh, um, the, the language Johnson uses about the economic growth and the unbridled growth and economic prosperity, if he thinks of if he thinks of the economic prosperity that that has come out of the New Deal, right, in the United States, after World War II at least, let's say. Uh, I mean, America has been per very economically prosperous and successful through the 1950s and in the 1960s. If Johnson thinks that economic prosperity is a cause of, a, of the moral crisis of democracy, then it seems like he's saying the New Deal then great society liberalism is a way to overcome New Deal liberalism. But if he thinks that economic prosperity is not necessarily bad, but, uh, but uh, has given us an opportunity to build on it and create this great society, focusing on these spiritual things, nature things, and so on and so forth, then it seems to me the great society is thought of as a fulfillment of the New Deal. Or maybe something larger than the New Deal, fulfillment of progressivism as a whole. So I've always just been curious about what, you know, LBJ's take on economic prosperity. Is he saying it's well, it's produced an evil, or is it produced an opportunity? And Chris, I think one I think one thing one comparison we could make in response to your question between conservatism and, and liberalism. If I think you have people whose primary goal would be to grow the economic pie, and we have leaders whose primary goal would be to divide the economic pie. And I noticed one of the questions that's come in via chat was oh, a good. comparison of Kennedy and LBJ. Well, Kennedy was a little bit more on the let's grow the pie kind of side. I mean, he did have a civil rights bill and some of the things that didn't quite get through in his abbreviated term. But Kennedy's big theme out of one of his campaign speeches was, you know, we can do better. And one of the one of his early policies was a tax cut to have, you know, greater economic growth and grow our national security apparatus. So you'd say, although he had concerns about fairness, that Kennedy was really more about vigor and about growth and getting the government, you know, from, from the softness of the Eisenhower years, as he saw it, to cut taxes and to get growth and to have more military involved, whereas I think Johnson's greater concern is the dividing of the pie. I think that's a fundamental difference uh, between uh, conservatism and, and liberalism, and, and this sort of brings that into focus. Yeah, that's a great point. I remember, too, and I know we didn't ask students to read it or uh, teachers to read it today, but I think it was in Johnson's first um, 
State of the Union message, he, he proposed further tax cuts um, or, or suggested the possibility of even more tax cuts. But he, he, he quadrupled the number of things in that same speech that he was right. going to ask government to do <laughs> from Kennedy, from anything Kennedy had asked for. So. Right. So I don't know how you balance. Well, you can't balance those things. It became really clear for Johnson. So well, I, I here's here's I think Reagan's take on it. Uh, I've been suggesting that the Great Society certainly depend. The necessary condition for the Great Society was the New Deal, and the question is whether it created it did something new and greater, and whether it's overcoming. I don't agree. Uh, immediately anyway, that somehow uh, the, the Great Society was trying to overcome necessarily the evil of materialism and capital, capitalism per se, because that's a theme in, in Roosevelt. There's a that big theme in this modern liberalism of a suspicion of the few who are wealthy. Uh, so I think that's a continuation. What really uh, challenges me is Reagan's speech, which is done in the same year as the, as the Michigan speech on behalf of Goldwater's campaign, Time for Choosing. And I'm thinking, prior to, prior to the Great Society, apparently, Reagan was a Democrat. So he had come to grips with the New Deal. Right. So there's something about the Great Society program, which in Reagan's mind anyway, is fundamentally different that one would change parties and change one's approach because of the great society. So I'm trying to figure out what is it in Reagan's mind that, that makes the great society so fundamentally different that he was, he's no longer a Democrat. Yeah. Uh, and then the other thing that David and I have had some really good chats about is time for choosing what? And what is it that are you going to roll back the New Deal? Which was something that you were at least comfortable with to be a Democrat on. Uh, what is a time for choosing? It seems to be a time for choosing between extending government and not trusting, which doesn't trust the people to make the decision themselves, and limiting government. So you talk about a pie, of, of a fixed pie rather than growing. Reagan looked upon it as a pie. He, as, as government extends, freedom declines. And that's the cho choice. And yeah. I'm wondering, my goodness, but um, we're extending civil rights to people. And I'm, so I'm, I'm concerned. So for Reagan, it looks like the Great Society program is a time for choosing, a time which he didn't think existed before the Great Society. So that's a real challenge to me because I am of the opinion that the Great Society is a fulfillment and not something so radically new. So I keep thinking that one through, in part because of Reagan's challenge that this is a time for choosing. Yeah. And he doesn't go after Social Security. Right. Right. Yeah. There are some aspects of the New Deal that are that are that are are here to stay, and that, that's right. And I, I think uh, you know, one of the David knows this, one of the things I've been having to wrestle with is the notion of what is it that conservatives have to accept. Yeah. Well. And, I mean, they can't, they can't fight everything. They have to accept certain things. And so right. what are those things? And it seems to me that Social Security is one of them. And I'm wondering now whether Obamacare has become another. Once something gets into the mind, and the, as, as, as Madison would put it, it becomes liquidated. It becomes accepted. Yeah. 
anyway, that, 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 that's my thought about my, the greatest challenge to me is to try to work through Reagan and what is it that we can choose and what we can't choose. Yeah, and this is a good start to, the, uh, to answer the question Shailen submitted on how Reagan went from being a very committed supporter of, of uh, I would throw FDR in there, but he mentions Truman, right, and evolve into the, the, the person who gave the time for choosing speech. He does say, he kind of bookends his speech to try to start to answer your question, Gordon, doesn't he? At the beginning of the speech, he says, the issue in this election is whether we still believe in individual liberty That's right. versus, or, or whether we believe in the, the uh, ability of, uh, how does he put it, a little group of intellectual elites in a far-off yeah. capital to run our lives for us? Yeah. So well, is, right. And then at the end of the speech, he mentions a perversion. A perversion has taken place. Is that the perversion? Is it, is it, this, is it the expansion of a smaller class of, of administrative experts running our lives in more intrusive and detailed ways? Well, so FDR? Enlightened... Uh, he says the enlightened yep. administrator has arrived. There you go. You, 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 want extension, you want an extension in the role of government? It's 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 FDR. Yeah. Well. Okay. I mean, well, I, yeah. we're having a conversation. I don't have the answer. That's well, why, and that's, another, that, that's why we're writing another book to try to figure out this this question. Well, the Great Society then is really the fulfillment of the Day of Enlightened Administration coming in, right? In that sense, so. Yeah, well, the, the day of fulfillment of the day of reckoning. Yeah. Yeah. Well. Okay. <laughs> So, so you know, Reagan also in that speech, um, he, 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 he's critical of, of the idea of government being able to govern our lives in such a detailed day-to-day -day way. He's also, um, he seems to be countering the critique from the great society of capitalism and wealth. Mm -hmm. uh, to circle back to some things you both mentioned earlier, when he talks about, I think he mentions in that speech, it's getting harder these days for for someone to see a, uh, a fat guy, which is politically incorrect, yeah, right. but who cares? <laughs> you know, it's getting harder for people to see a fat guy today without thinking he got that way by screwing people in business or something like that, right? Hmm. So it seems to me Reagan is, Reagan is trying to characterize great society liberalism as anti-wealth, anti-economic um, opportunity, and, and anti-economic growth. Um, there's no question in that. I'm just thinking out loud about if uh, some of the I things. Think, you know, Chris, I think what, one thing we could say is that um, Reagan, both in this speech and all the way through his presidency, I think was rhetorically trying to rebalance the relationship between the individual and the government. Mm. Uh, and rather than speaking first or even only about, you know, what, what is government able to do, I think Reagan is trying to say, but but really the point is, what are individuals able to do? That's really what the society, the society is built on. He says in that speech, mm -hmm. uh, consent of the governed, you know, is still one of the greatest things that, you know, ever come about in man's relation to man. And yeah. a government needs to be more about consent of the governed than just governing. So again, as we said earlier, some of these liberal conservative debates are kind of a matter of emphasis. And I think Reagan rhetorically from this speech right on through, I mean, you could argue he didn't actually accomplish as much as president as he probably would have liked in rebalancing yeah. uh, toward a smaller government, but he did a rhetorical rebalance, I think, where he was able to make the case for individual liberty, for the importance of the consent of the governed, and, and frankly diminish the role of the federal government rhetorically, if not as president, much actually. <laughs>
Well, that's very clear. But when you frame it that way, David, I really do see Hoover reemerge in that sense in, in Reagan. Yeah, sure. He's, yeah. Gordon and I have described Hoover as the John the Baptist crying in the wilderness. Nobody was listening to him in the 30s. But he was making, he was preaching the sermon and he was making the base yeah. and the case for uh, modern American conservatism. And apparently people were listening to Reagan. Again, Goldwater lost in 64, but um, people were listening to Reagan and others like him making these kinds of arguments enough that there was, you really, you talk about the origins of conservatism, modern conservatism. Well, I, I put that wrong. The, the idea that conservatism could be a respectable, viable political movement, I know it started to emerge, I believe, in the late 1950s with right. uh, thinkers like Buckley and others, but it seemed, again, even though uh, uh, Goldwater lost in 64, the significance of that campaign, that presidential election, was uh, that conservatism found a voice, especially in people like Reagan, and they right. put that message out there, and that, that really did seem to revive this framework that you just described, David, right? What's the what's the relationship between individual liberty and, and the role of government? And then to what extent do we ask what individuals can do first and then sort of residually afterward what needs to be done that only government can do? So, no, so that I think would be the significance of 64 to me. Yeah, I think that's right. I think I think Hoover and Goldwater did both did a lot to advance the conservative philosophy. I would say Conscience of a Conservative by Barry Goldwater is one of the best cases of, uh, in terms of developing a modern conservative philosophy. But I think it took a kinder, gentler, friendlier Ronald Reagan, <laughs> un un unlike the dour Herbert Hoover whose you know, chin is on his chest reading his notes kind of communication, mm -hmm. and Barry Goldwater kind of the sharp cowboy Arizona westerner a little bit harder to hear their, the message from them. But then Ronald Reagan, with the Hollywood <laughs> uh, style and communication, was able to translate that into terms that, that people could begin to understand. Yeah. So I think you have to read Hoover and Goldwater to really get the philosophy, but then you have to look at Reagan, who was really able to convey that to the common man. Yeah, that's very well put. And another thing that Reagan didn't completely push well, Hoover didn't, but Goldwater did, the Tenth Amendment. He, uh, uh, Goldwater pushed the Tenth Amendment to the point where he, he got slapped back with uh, the idea that you're being a racist. And it's very difficult, uh, state, the connection between states' rights and sort of anti-civil rights, that connection, because very, very dicey. And, and I think Reagan was, as David put it, a gentler, kinder, recognizing that there's a role for the federal government. And he didn't he put it in terms of the people, the individual uh, restraining. He didn't put it completely in terms of the states. As, as, uh, he didn't make, I don't think Reagan made the Tenth Amendment his constitutional issue. Yeah. No, that's a great, that's a really important point, Gordon. Please go ahead. That's, that's really important. No, and Hoover didn't. Make, make the Tenth Amendment uh, critical, and I, 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 I so I, being attached to the Tenth Amendment in the way in which uh, Goldwater's conscience required him began in a sense help conservatism, but it also put conservatism on the back foot in yeah. the sixties and seventies 
in terms of trying to explain that why a conservative is not um, a, a, a racist or anti-civil rights and, and, and how come uh, the, the black vote and, and simply abandon uh, the, uh, the Republican Party. Right. No, that's, a, that's a great point. And, and so I think that what Reagan did, uh, to use Davis terms, he managed to communicate limited government in a way which did not completely rely on states' rights to limit government. Yeah. No, that's, a, that's a great point. Yeah, because, again, in the minds of a lot of people, Tenth Amendment uh, had become a, I mean, you associate Jim Crow, right, with, with the right of the states under the Tenth Amendment. Well, you've lost your argument. Yeah, that's right. So. Uh, uh, rhetorically to you, I mean, I mean, I think David's insight is, 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 is very good indeed. And, and, and as Reagan as a communicator, but he knew what to communicate. It's the individual, it's sort of, we have to simplify this individual versus the state. Yeah. Not the right. state, it's not the individual states versus the federal government. That's, that's absolutely critical. It's there. By the way, what really interested me about, and I did, you know, when you read something again, and what you what you see, what you didn't see, but the first, the second, or third time, because David and I worked on worked on this war metaphor and war, etc. I began to read these these documents in a way which I've never read them before, preparing for our conversation today. And the war metaphor is there at, at Reagan, his farewell address. Yeah. <laughs> he even called it the Reagan Revolution and my regiment. I mean, there's certain Roosevelt rhetoric. I mean, Reagan refers to the rendezvous with destiny. And a lot of the, 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 famous, the, the famous FDR language right. Reagan has now turned in, on behalf of the individual rather than on behalf of the state. It's, uh, it's, That's fascinating. Why, why, why do you think Reagan, is, is that because that language, the FDR just made that language so successful that every president felt compelled to do it? Or do you think Reagan did that intentionally? I think, well, I, I don't know enough about this. David has spent more time dealing with presidential addresses, etc. But my hunch is that Reagan understood that he was the television equivalent of FDR's radio. That's very interesting. And, 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 that, and that you needed that kind of conservatism, that a sort of a conservatism that you can embrace and, and, and be proud of. Hmm. So one thing is that so this idea of the rebellion, not just the rebellion, excuse me, but conservatism as, as, as a battle cry came through to me in a way when he said farewell. And the other thing that I, 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 that I just, just, I didn't realize this. Reagan has outlined in this final paragraph or two the whole case for civic education in America mm-hmm. that for the 21st century. The idea it starts at the dinner table, it goes around, it goes into the schools, you teach how to love your country. And as David and I know, I mean, how can you love a country in which you're painted as an ugly, more than an ugly duckling? Yeah. And the Howard Zinn approach. And so I think Rick's farewell was to to wake Americans up to a certain kind of civic duty and civic education. Uh, and, and reading the Constitution, let's start with that. Let's, let's start. Um, I was very impressed with his farewell address. And I, but one, I didn't realize he used the war metaphor that way. 
Hmm. And secondly, I didn't realize that he anticipated precisely what needs to be done and what Ashbrook is doing and Pepperdine is doing also in terms of the approach to why we need civic education, not just a narrow sense, uh, but in the whole idea of of, um, institutional support. Yeah. The the separation of powers and bicameralism can only go so far. Yeah. <laughs> but, but, but you cannot limit government unless you have a strong individual. Yeah, that's a great point. So we're we're, we're coming in at the close of our time here. It just this has flown by. Oh, here, it's just run by. That's because I came in late. Well, yeah. Well, this is this has been great, and we've covered a lot of great thoughts. So maybe a final question, and you can answer it or ignore it and talk about whatever you want. Uh, but maybe to summarize, a question from Candy. Um, are we still living? Are we still living in a world that um, sort of vibrates between the two poles of great society liberalism and Reagan conservatism? And uh, where do you see this going in the future? <laughs> that's that's an unfair question. <laughs> I, I, I think that that um, moderate Democrats are now in great society, but they're in that uh, the Democratic Party, in a sense, has moved beyond the great society. Mm. And I wish the conservatives would come back to Reagan. Hmm. Interesting. David, jump in on this, or any other thoughts on this that you'd like to? Well, I think I. I mean, I think it's right that you know, if 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 the tool of liberalism is essentially government growth and greater government um, uh, oversight of of American life then that trend is very powerful and just keeps pushing. Um, uh, another way to put it is kind of when, when, when you get to Washington and you're in the federal government, the winds all blow to left and toward more and more government. And, and, and you see even you know, conservative and Republican presidents and members of Congress who, yeah, you know, we, we don't really believe in a lot of government control, but let's have no child left behind and let the federal yeah. government take over education. Or let's have Obamacare and have the government take over healthcare. So I mean, the winds are very strong in Washington. That the government knows what it's doing, as FDR said, we can do economic planning. Uh, as as LBJ said, we don't want unbridled growth. So all those winds blow very strongly that way, and even I think even conservatives get caught up in it. And my great fear for the future of conservatism is that I think the the bedrock of conservatism, which is individual liberty and consent of the government. It too easily becomes a, a, an abstraction. It, it's not real to people anymore. Mm-hmm. My kids don't understand why I don't want the government doing things. Well, Dad, if it needs to get done, why do you care if it's the government or an individual or a church or a nonprofit? And I do care, but they don't care so much. Uh, they want to see things get done, quote unquote. And Washington is all too eager to, quote, do something. Unquote. Yeah. So that, I think, to me, is kind of the future battle is. Um, with, with all the winds blowing toward not, not toward limited government, but toward government solving our problems, where, you know, the Green New Deal, you know, it sounds like the Great Society speech, you know, we need to fix everything, we need to change the whole economy in one big fell swoop. Um, and, and I think that, that liberty, the case for liberty becomes abstract in people's minds. And so I think, I think conservatism has the greater challenge to keep its bedrock principles clear and in play and relevant to people. Yeah. So again, striking that balance uh, between yes. 
the individual and, and then the proper role of government. And, and right, you know, right. That's great. Well, well, I also think with the, the farewell speeches is, uh, is, is that we have made America great again. That is what I think Reagan's revolution is, is, is getting across in farewell. And thank you for making America great again and keep it great. And yeah. It's great through civic education and the strength of the individual. And remember that freedom is only one generation away from being lost. Yeah. And and I was also surprised at the extent to which he he, he held out the city on a hill. That yeah. the city on a hill is that America is a is a beacon for freedom for refugees. And he mentions the idea of a wall, but there has to be doors in the wall. Right. Uh, and so it's really is fascinating how. To me, the challenge of conservatives today, or Trump conservatives, is to come to grips with Reagan's farewell speech. That's a great point. Yeah, great point. So maybe some good advice there for uh, for contemporary conservatives to look at. And the advice to liberals is come to grips with the Great Society speech. Yeah. What's not great about it? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, that's great. That's fantastic. Well, thank you both very much, gentlemen. Uh, we've come to our end, at the end of our time, and I, I think I feel like we could go on for another hour easily on this. But, <laughs> but I appreciate your time very much, and uh, a lot of great thoughts. And I've learned a lot from both of you, as as I usually do in these webinars. So, thank you both uh, both very much. I, I apologize again for no, no. incompetence. We're happy to have you for half an hour, Gordon. It's, it's, it's very very uh, happy that you were able to take some time uh, with us this morning. So. Thank Jeremy. Thanks, Chris. Thanks, David. Thanks, Gordon. Thank you very much indeed. Bye-bye, David. Bye. Thanks to everybody who joined us today. Just, again, a reminder about the email you'll get with the link for your certificate of participation. Um, So, again, this is the last webinar in this series. We look forward to starting again in August with a new theme. And uh, I think I'm allowed to say that the theme for August, for next year, will be American Minds. We'll be looking at 10 individuals who I think help us – think about um, what it means to be an American and how their particular minds, their writings, their contributions, political or otherwise, help to shape uh, how we as Americans think about things. So uh, that'll be the theme for next year's webinars, and I hope you all uh, will join us then. Until then, take care, and thanks. Bye. Thank you for listening to another TAH.org podcast. You can find archives of all our previous programs as well as information about future programs at tah.org webinars or on iTunes by searching for teachingamericanhistory.org.